you've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Certain ways of doing things, certain ways of approaching things, but the things that you would typically call superstition nowadays. Um, and they're more part of the folk culture than the organized religion itself. So it's a place where the two sort of overlap and dance with each other and a place where you see the opposite of the syncretism. In this case, what you're seeing is the folk culture overlapping with the actual religious aspects as opposed to the religious aspects overlapping with another religion. Hello and welcome to Drinks With God, a podcast about alternative theological experiences, death, and life. All of the following content is based on each interviewee's own personal experiences and is meant to be educational, not confrontational. you like it or not. We just spent an hour trying to figure out what to decide to call my anonymous guest. Hi, I'm the anonymous guest. Alright, so fuck it. Um, today I'm having a drink. Several drinks. With this... I am several drinks in. <laughs> no, you're not. Alright, by several I mean one and a half. Alright, so keep, keep drinking. I'm trying to put you at a disadvantage. <laughs> keep drinking. I need to own the stage. <sighs> there is no stage. Damn it. <laughs> My God. All right. Welcome Stop to Drinks Slam Jam. <laughs> Welcome to Drinks with God. This was already turning out to be a disaster of an episode. Um, Pretty much. I'm slamming back with this mouthy limpet over here. Mouthy limpet? Well, aren't we a doodle, honey? And we're going to. And we're going to be trying very hard to stay on topic. We're going to be talking today about several different things, which might lead to two episodes. We will see. It depends. What this magical journey will take us on. I have a forked tongue and a magical snake in my pants, so who knows? No, I've got another guest who's coming on who's actually a man with just a bunch of snakes in a man's suit. But we're going to be talking about um, Santeria. Wait. Snakes in a man suit. A bunch of snakes in a man suit. How many of my exes do you know? <laughs> that sounds like a conversation that'll happen in like two or three beers from now. Mmm. <laughs> yes. Can you uh, just start by letting the audience know a little bit about your background? Where I come from. Yeah, why, why the fuck weird... should we be talking to you about this? If for me, it's a strange mix. I am the child of an unconverted Norwegian family and a very strange, syncretic, Catholic, Cuban family. Um, I spent most of my time growing up with my family on the Cuban side. My family on the Norwegian side was huge on the idea of me understanding tradition, traditional religion, the way we quote-unquote, always did things, stuff like that. Um, My mom's family, the Cuban side of the family, was very much the same but more subtle. They were very... Like, my dad's side of the family was big on statecraft, and this is why you should know the things you need to know and why you need to understand the things you need to understand to be a man in this family. My mom's side of the family was like, mijo, 
there's a witch at the corner of the street. There's this brujeria bitch who is going to, like, turn you into a cripple unless you go over there and burn a chicken. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? It's like, no, you take a chicken and you cover it in pennies and holy water and then you pee on it and you'll be fine. What? You people are fucking insane. Now, two days later, you're laying in bed, sick, exhausted, something weird is going on, you have no idea, and your mom's like, hang on, I'm going to go pee on some pennies. <laughs> well, And five, ten minutes later, you're fine. Okay, might be the placebo effect. But after the fifth or sixth time, you, you take listen notice. to your mother. That's what yeah. you learn. There's a point where you take notice and go, you know what? This isn't 100% my vibe, my thing. Like, I fall in line more with my Norwegian heritage and my dad's side of the family. But I'm completely attentive to my mom's side of the family because where she comes from is equally valid. Yeah. And reality, at least in my own subjective experience, proves that out. So I'm not going to argue with things that I've seen or experiences that I've had or people that I trust at a certain level or in a certain way when it comes to religion and spirituality and call them higher questions. Um, but I have two equally valid and almost polar opposite perspectives on pretty much everything that I touch in my life. And while religiously I tend to stick to the Northern European side, there's still always a little bit of wisdom from mom. And I'm never going to be able to get away from a little bit of wisdom from mom. Because some of it is just nothing that I would think of or, or come into contact with on the other side, on that Northern European side. So having that variety, I, I don't mind it at all. It's a very interesting, it's not a dichotomy. It's a study in how different people do different things, not a study in opposites, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And actually, just real quick, just going back to the idea of um, subjective reality. We talked briefly before we started recording about uh, the whole idea of syncretic religions and how there are so many that seem to either branch alongside or deal with having butt up against Catholicism. Um, could you just kind of go into a little bit more depth about your own personal experiences with um, your mother's religion and maybe your own opinions on like, the history of it about like how and why it well, works if you ask that side of my family what faith or what religion they were they would tell you they were catholic they wouldn't tell you that they were interested in santeria brujaria anything and it definitely wouldn't be related to voodoo which as soon as you study it it totally is they're all afrosyncratic religions but if you ask them yeah they would be catholic now they would do fascinating things to appease saints um and that's i think one of the biggest differences you see at first in syncretic religions there are these secondary components from the primary religion in this case catholicism that get focused on because it's easier to fit them to the local color so I guess to talk about it, you have to back up. When you talk about Santeria, you go back way before Catholicism. You actually go back way before Christianity in general. Yeah, back to folk religion. That evolved over time. Locale by locale. Yes. And it was different village to village. And that's something that has to be understood, is the tradition from one village is going to be different from another, even today. 
even today in places like, well, anywhere on Hispaniola, whether it's, you know, the Haitian side or the Dominican Republic, whether you're talking about Cuba or Central America, there's always going to be a lot of local color. And it's the same thing in what people call voodoo, all the voodoo-based religions. Religions spend a lot of time describing concepts like God, the soul, the afterlife, creation, sometimes extinction, or in Christianity, revelation. Um, These are all core components. A lot of time is spent on them. A lot of detail is put into them. When you get into the secondary components, when you get into things like saints and apostles, what you have is stories from second or third hand sources about a person, not as many of them, and they're much more open to interpretation. So when you're trying to keep the local faith, the local religion, the local spiritual color alive, the easiest thing to manipulate to match what you already believe is those secondary elements. So in Santeria, there's a concept of the Orishas, which is this primal series of powers that are almost, if you're familiar with psychology, like Jungian psychology in particular, archetypical powers. If you look at those, what they do when Catholicism penetrates their landmass, their country, their culture, is take them and map them to saints and then start in name only worshiping those saints. So the same appeals and the same sacrifices and the same dedications and devotions that would be made to those orishas are now made in the names of those saints. It gets it under the radar of the church. If they believe in the monotheistic God quality of Christianity, it gives them the opportunity to abide by that because they're dealing with powers, beings, and things that are secondary to it. Wow, that was long-winded. I think it was coherent, though. No, no, it was coherent. Good job. All right. We need to put another drink in me and see where the coherency goes. All right. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, as he uh, takes another drink to become less coherent, or more coherent, we'll see. Since things do vary um, by, like, you know, locale, locale, have have you specifically come across any instances where practices that you grew up with were markedly different from others, or...? No, believe it or not, no. But I haven't had as much exposure as I'd probably like to. Um... I'm going to say my primary exposures to it in practice, seeing people actually practice this stuff, has been Cubans and Puerto Ricans. Now, the thing to understand about Spanish and Hispanic cultures is they're very distinctly different. Spanish-speaking peoples are not the same. So when you're talking about someone from Cuba, someone from Puerto Rico, someone from the Dominican Republic, someone from El Salvador, they have much more in common in language than they do culture. So there are big variations, huge variations in some cases. Um, Mexican culture, major variations because they come from a different rootstock than we do. You know, the Mexicans were talking thousands of years of civilization before them, and then they inherit small pieces of it orally. They have traditions that are different from anything in the African syncretic group. They're kind of unique. They're a weird mix of what you find in South America and Central America and what you find in the Southeast of the U.S. than with the Christianity thrown in. And, um... Wow. I totally sideways answered that. No, no, no. But you did it in a coherent manner. So, have another drink. (laughs) 
This is drinks with God. This is not sober chats with God. Um, we'll be sober later but during the editing process. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the censorship process. No, the censorship process is only insofar as you require it. Mr. Anonymous. Mr. A. Nani Mouse. Mr. A. Nani Mouse. First name A, middle name Nani, last name Mouse. Yes. Squeakums for short. That's almost like the kind of joke Shakespeare would make. Edit that out. Nobody's going to get it. No, people will get it. This is a... I have a weirdly dry and academic podcast considering the network I'm on. Oh, by the way, this is the first time that I'm pod- that I'm recording after being accepted onto the uh, podcast jukebox network. Shout out to those guys. Go check out all the other podcasts in the group. I'm the only one that is not just about BDSM. <laughs> so since this is a very academic podcast about theological, theological di- discourse and philosophy, I don't know how much crossover there is. But for some a reason, lot. Oh. well, my my last episode after the one that's about to air, that's going to air right before yours, that hasn't been published yet. Crossing the time streams. Um. <laughs> well, it, let's cross the time streams for a minute. There's a concept in both Shantaria and Voodoo, and in the Northern European religions like Fornsed. Of sacrificing oneself to oneself. And one of the expressions of that concept is very much in line with BDSM. Uh Um, The idea of going through that type of an experience, especially a sadomasochistic experience, for spiritual enlightenment is not unheard of. So yeah, there's, there's a little bit of crossover. Actually, I would love to get into that because one of the things that I try to do research it and try to like get more information out to the fore is the fact that it's only very recently that the whole sexual part of humanity was taken out of the religious experience mm-hmm. that being a part of humanity was not discounted by religion mm-hmm. but it until doesn't recently. change the fact that ecstatic experience is ecstatic experience yes and i know that um i know that not all versions of uh, Santeria call it, refer to it as horsing, but I know that several do. Several do. Those are, when you get closer to the African cultures, they do. Yeah, so you have horses and you have riders, and that's that speaks to a larger and more mythic experience. I think they kind of, like, do you want me to unpack that? Um, you can unpack that, but I would also, well, I'll, 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 rein you back, I'll rein you back in after you unpack that. Okay, so if we're going to talk about horses or being a horse, what we're referring to is something that shows up more often in popular culture. And this is great, great horror movie material. Oh, yeah. No, we were, we were going to get into that, so yeah. jump on in. What you have to understand about Santeria, Brujeria, Voodoo, any of the Afrosyncretic religious groups, possession... And the experience of possession and the experience and the evolution through possession are considered normal. It's not the exorcist. It's a way to commune with something bigger than you. And that's sort of key. It's not being taken or being used or being abused by something. It's willingly sacrificing your ego so that something else can use the rest of you as a vehicle. 
I mean, even as recently as the whole um, Christian religious revival, speaking in tongues, falling into convulsions on the floor, that was not absent from even mainstream religions. Right. And that was very common in primitive religions. Yeah. Incredibly Um, common. The whole trance state thing, the drumming, the flickering lights of the candles. Again, yeah. Ecstatic experience is ecstatic experience. It, It changes us. Yeah. You know, some people do acid. Some people get bit by snakes in a church and, and, you know, South Dakota. Some people chant in Latin. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But ecstatic experience is ecstatic experience, and it's part of what makes up religious experience. You have ecstatic experience, transcendental experience, or transcendent experience. You have guy who has a hard time saying transcendental because he's drinking. You have a guy who has lost his place. Wait a moment, he's come back. You have a guy who's jigging his, jiggling his leg and causing a drumming sensation with the levels on the floor. Great. Thank you for stopping that. That's <laughs> your mic, not mine. Okay. I just bring that. Look, watch. Watch. All right. Well, they're both mics that are owned by you. Thank you for loaning them for this session. Yeah, one of them's... All right. They're all my fault. Yeah, it's all your fault. So uh, we're getting back to... Horsing, but in the context of how it... Um, You're the horse. The, the higher power is the rider. Yes. So to be ridden is to be possessed. It is to let yourself go and be the vehicle of something greater. And it's not as foreign as people tend to think it is. When you say someone is filled with the Holy Spirit in a Baptist church or Pentecostal church... It's the same experience. It's that same experience. Something else rides you and drives you. You're still there. You're still you. That will never change. But something else climbs on top and you run together. And it's a very hard experience to describe. But when you see it happen, it's surreal. In my own case, I've seen... People can find to wheelchairs, get up and dance. I've seen blind men perform complex tasks that make no sense unless they have vision or knowledge of what's going on around them. I've seen pregnant women having complications return to a normal state for a protracted period of time. Um, and I guess specifically I'm talking about personally I've seen a woman break her water at seven months. And not that long later, with a small woman who only spoke Spanish and carried a stinky pouch of herbs, was fine until she finally gave birth at 10 months. There's a lot of variations on the experience, I guess. But to bring it back to... um, To the being ridden specifically? Well, I wanted to bring... Well, if you want to touch on that, yes. I do want to eventually bring it back to your more um, Caribbean Latino roots with it. Since um, you said horsing specifically is more Afrocentric, yeah, yeah, being ridden or being a horse is a—it's a terminology that you find in African cultures. Um, specifically, the term being ridden. Being ridden is when you maintain yourself but drop your will and let someone else become the driver. Now, most of the people in the audience have had this experience, but they've had it with themselves. There's a part of themselves, there's a part of their mind, there's a part of their being, there's a part of their psyche or their soul or whatever you want to call it, that's just a little bit different. It's just a little bit different from the way they are every day. Maybe it's more assertive. 
Maybe it's angrier. Maybe it's more peaceful. It's different, though. And it's like this passenger in the car when you go along through life. And every now and then something happens. And for a lot of people, it's when you lose your temper. You know, something snaps. You let your Tyler Durden out. Exactly. And the passenger momentarily takes the wheel. That's when you're being ridden. Yeah. When you have prayed so hard and so long out of pure and raw faith that the Holy Spirit of Christ is in you, you are being ridden. When you have made yourself open and you are accepting the spirit of one of the Odishas and you act and act on the behalf of that Odisha, you are being ridden. It's a cross-cultural experience, but that term, being ridden, being a horse, being the rider, that tends to be more Afrocentric. It's a great metaphor, though. It's probably, in the whole cluster of them, that it's a great metaphor, and it's probably the best one out there. And just to bring it back to more in your own personal wheelhouse of experiences, since that's a more Afrocentric version of what uh, San- Santoria experiences, is there a parallel within the more um, North American, Latin American Terminology-wise, I don't know that there is one. Um, linguistically, I'm not great here. Um, how about, but uh, experience-wise, perhaps? Just like that level of um, ecstatic devotion or ex- I've had that experience? ecstatic experience within both traditions. Okay. Um, if there isn't an exact term for it, but it does exist. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So there probably is a maybe a term or a series of terms, maybe? Or I've definitely heard it described before as the manifestation of the will, or of the, as the manifestation of the will into being, okay. but not in a short-form term, although I'm sure that one probably exists and I haven't been exposed to it yet. That's fine. It's I'm always looking, I'm always searching, I'm always studying, but... I haven't quite run across everything, so... We were just talking um, about possession and, um, well, self-inflicted... Intentional, ecstatic experience kinds of possession. Yes. And that's... um, In Afrosyncratic religions and in traditions like Santeria, that's a big, big part of the thing. It's not an anomaly. It's not something that happens because of the devil. It's not bad or negative or evil or dark. It's a normal part of the experience. Um, You're dealing with a religion where you have a pantheon of roughly 10 to 14, depending on where you're standing geographically, higher powers. They're not gods, per se. They're larger than us. They're bigger in scope and in scale and in power than us. And... They correspond rather strikingly, actually, to Jungian archetypes, or even if you're familiar with the works of Joseph Campbell, the archetypes in Campbell. Um, Those archetypes tend to get mapped to saints, which is something that we talked about a little bit earlier, and that's sort of the syncretism, the way that they keep them alive when they have new religions pop in, in this case Christianity, for the last couple thousand years. Um, I think it's important to realize, though, that The idea in these religions of divine intervention is very often direct intervention. They're not dealing with some sort of far-off phantasmagorical entity. They're entreating 
their higher powers to actually enter them and then execute things in reality. So it's very, very different. They're not looking to have a prayer answered remotely. They're looking for a close personal relationship. And in the course of that relationship, they're looking for the opportunity to give their higher power the ability to ride them like a horse, hence the horse metaphor that we used earlier, and actually carry things out, hear the petitions of practitioners, um, do things, make changes, cast spells, do healings, whatever. So they're looking for that physically in front of them. They're not looking for it to happen via remote. And I guess a a good way to analogize it is Santeria practitioners want to be plugged into what they're dealing with, where in many other faiths, it's more like your prayers are an email and you're hoping you get a reply. So um, I think that kind of covers the the why as well as it starts to kind of touches on the practical aspect of, um, of the religion. I know that you'd said in practice, Afrocentric and uh, Latin American... um, They're they're nearly identical. There's huge cultural differences, don't get me wrong. The flavor is wildly different. But if you drill down to the actual components, the pragmatic pieces, um, even down to things like the number of higher powers they believe in and what they represent and so on. It's it's very, very similar. In terms of acti- actual practical ritual experience, almost identical. Um, and that's really... There's a very formal way of doing it in the Afrocentric ones that is not the same as what you see in Santeria. But what you see in the countryside, what you see the average practitioner doing, is almost identical. Okay. So, um, in your own personal experiences I know that you've done a lot more with a more of like your father's side of in terms of tradition but um, is it is it formulaic or it varies um, in terms of like I want to accomplish this so it I'm, varies you know. based on what you want to accomplish and who you're trying to interact with and again I think that's a place where we can make the distinction in the afrocentric side of things things are very much more formulaic there's very tightly prescribed ways of doing things where in the Latin American side of things, it's more like shamanism. You're kind of going by the seat of your pants based on what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it. All right. So just kind of throwing things more into layman's terms, more formulaic being I'm going to do these specific chants to open. There's a recipe. Yeah. Yeah. There's a recipe for it. And you repeat that recipe with minor modifications based on who you're going to serve. Where in the Latin American, the recipe itself, not that important as long as you actually wind up cooking a meal. All right. Very cool. Um, And just going back more to practical applications of everything, it's, um, I know you'd use the phrase, uh, very superstition-based. Yeah, if you want to talk about day-to-day life with this stuff, you know, people aren't going out and getting possessed on a daily basis. Yeah, that would be impractical. Yeah. Um, They're also not spending a lot of time praying to or entreating their higher powers on a daily basis. What they are doing is stuff that's similar to superstition. They're making small offerings, sometimes things like incense, cigarettes, whiskey, wine. um, A specific sign in a specific location. or Right. A specific candle color burnt for the right amount of time. Um, Certain ways of doing things, certain ways of approaching things. But the things that you would typically call superstition, 
nowadays. Um, and they're more part of the folk culture than the organized religion itself. So it's a place where the two sort of overlap and dance with each other. And a place where you see the opposite of the syncretism. In this case, what you're seeing is the folk culture overlapping with the actual religious aspects. As opposed to the religious aspects overlapping with another religion. And that would be more handed down orally, which is where the local flavor to local flavor comes in. Right. So, like, I'll give you a Cuban one. If my left palm itches, that means I'm going to be getting money. If my right palm itches, that means I'm going to be losing money or giving somebody else money. Now, if I scratch it, that'll make it happen. Now, if I scratch my hand with the fingers of the same hand, hopefully that will save me from it happening. Unless it's my left hand, in which case I'm going to scratch it with my right because I really want that money to come in. Now, it sounds silly, and to a certain degree it is, but that kind of superstition connects itself to the overall religion and fills in the gaps of day-to-day life. Have you ever come across any um, practices that very, uh, very much butt heads with each other? Do they all kind of oh, yeah, fall absolutely, absolutely. There's, um, you know, if you go into Central America or Mexico... You have wild variations on the theme, um, stuff that's very, very different. So I can give you an example. If you go Central America or Mexico, you'll run into a version of the faith called Palo Mayambe. Palo is interesting in that the structure is different, and it's probably the only version of these religions I can think of that has ever led to a serial killer. So in Palo, you have this thing called an inganga, which is basically a cauldron in which you store, germinate, and feed power that you want you and your followers to have. So in that inganga, you want things that are sacrificial symbols of the powers that you need to have in life. Now, it could be something simple, like you could need strength or great strength. So... This is not an exact analogy. It's not the way they would do it. But for a Western audience, a good example would be if you then went out and killed a mountain lion or a bear and put its skull or its bones in the Nganga, that would impart that type of power to the priest and his followers. Yeah. Um, The thing about Paolo is that could also be a human. And in the case of the serial killer that I mentioned, and I'm trying to remember his name, there's actually a documentary about him you can find on YouTube. Um, There was a priest in the Southwest, I think it was Texas, who was killing people and putting their bones in the Nganga. Some people take their devotion to very specific places. Now, contrary to popular (laughs) belief or or what you see in horror movies, within the Afro-syncretic religions and within things like Santeria, Human sacrifice is not the norm. That's not something that would normally come into play. But within this particular faith, the idea of anything that you have to do to put the powers and the qualities that you need to have into that ritual vessel can be carried, you know, as, as the host said, way, way, way too far. Um, but yeah, they do. They do butt heads. They do have. You look at South America um, in particular, you say the word brujaria to a priest or a shaman down there, and that's an evil witch. Yeah. You go to Puerto Rico, and a bruja is pretty much the ethnic version of a Wiccan with completely different roots. 
Um, so it really depends on where you're standing geographically. It changes a lot. Okay. I didn't know that uh, Brujaria had such a wide definition, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you go into um, if you go into the Amazon cultures, a bruja is, is a step down from a demon. Yeah. I only knew the Amazonian connotations of it because I've only ever come into any writings on them in relation to the um, curanderos because I really... Right. And the curanderos see them as their natural enemies. Yeah. Now, they practice a completely different type of ecstatic experience. That's pure shamanism as opposed to organized religion or semi-organized religion, which is what we've been talking about. So when you talk about the Coranderos, what they're doing is channeling and funneling ecstatic experience and using that as the main focus of everything. They have a belief that the world functions on two planes. There's basically this world and a functional underworld that is a mirror of this one and tied to it. There's something in that world that represents everything in this world and vice versa. And if you make a change in one world, that change will play out in the other world. They seek to experience that other world and interact with reality on that level, which they believe is the causal level of reality. And they tend to do it through drug experiences. So that's where ayahuasca comes in and, you know, basically the the primitive precursors to things like DMT. Um, They're having these massive vision quests where they're entering another perceptual world, changing things, modifying things, playing with the flow of energy, and then they're coming back. It's something completely foreign to what we're talking about in Santeria, Brujaria, and Voodoo, but equally valid. It's just more primitive, less organized, and less influenced by social structures like governments and churches but still a surviving tradition. And still, you know, we go back to what we said earlier, ecstatic experience is ecstatic experience. And um, going back a little bit more to uh, structured, everyday experience in um, in Santeria, where, um, in, in terms of a, a modern context, um, where have you seen it change and shift today as opposed to, like, uh, where its roots would be in folk religion? I mean, obviously, like, the most um, the most obvious place where you'd see that is how and where it uh, it deals with te- um, technology or just well, technology introduces some weird variants. Um, I have bumped into people that practice both Santeria and Voodoo, um, not together, but you know, practitioners of, of both traditions that believe that the Orishas in Santeria or the Loa in Voodoo exist in cyberspace. So there is actually a small, a very small, but there's a small subset out there that believes that those higher powers are actually represented by self-organizing artificial intelligences that will one day appear online. Now that's wild, because these guys will leave sacrifices in front of things like ATM machines with internet-connected video cameras. The logic being that spirit now has a place to live. We've created something that can, a framework that can hold something like that. That's fantastic. And the idea that if you want to explore it more, uh, in William Gibson's Sprawl trilogy, the third book was called Mona Lisa Overdrive, and he actually directly explores it in the story narrative. I, and that, it's set, that rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, it's set far forward in the future. But he explores the idea that the Loa have actualized as artificial intelligences that self-organized on the internet. 
and that they are constantly monitoring everything and they have access to everything that's connected to the internet. So when you make that prayer in front of an ATM machine and you leave your sacrifice of rum and cigarettes, for instance, in front of an ATM machine or in front of a payphone, they know. And what plays out, what they do for you, is something that originates from an online manipulation that has an impact on the real world, which is not hard to imagine. If you've ever ordered from a pharmacy online, there's a massive impact that the internet has on the real world and vice versa. But that conceptualization is growing and it's, it's new and it's unique. And I know I learned it first from that Gibson novel, but having bumped into it in the real world, I have to wonder where that's going to go over the next 20, 30, 40 years. I would love to ask some of the older people how they feel about things like IBM's Watson. Would Watson qualify as one of these beings? And, you know, for me, I think conceptually the answer is probably yes. But Watson doesn't have the ability to display power. It can't go out and do things, manipulate situations yet. If it could, it would kind of fit the definition, which is sort of amazing. But... Again, it speaks to how these traditions have survived for so long. It's that syncretism. They will evolve into whatever format they are presented with. The last format they were presented with was Catholicism. The format they're being presented with now is the Internet. It's going to be fascinating to see how these things connect. How they're going to do it, I don't know. I really don't know. But it usually starts at a street level. It usually starts with the smallest common denominator, not organized churches or organized groups. So it's going to be the output, the democratic output, really, of individual practitioners and how they handle that technology nowadays. But yet that belief that you know these, these things will come into being online, that they will be actualized online, and that will be their new horse, yeah. that's, that's fascinating. The the whole idea of the divine online is a very um, new field that some people scoff at, but I mean, like, that's what we have to deal with now. Cyberspace is just such a huge part of our lives that... We have begun to begin, what we have begun to live, parts of our lives within an internet space, abstractly, non-physically. We are now sharing our consciousnesses across thousands, sometimes millions of miles with one another. And it brings me back to something that Stephen King said that I always thought was brilliant. People spend their whole lives trying to figure out telepathy. Meanwhile, it's called reading and writing. Because when I write something, I can record and store thoughts and consciousness and perceptions. And then I can hand them to somebody else. They can read them back and simulate or experience my thoughts perceptions, and consciousness. That is, by definition, telepathy. But we've changed the writing medium. We've changed it to the World Wide Web and the Internet and mobile technology. So it changes the nature of telepathy. Now it's real-time. It's crowdsourced. There's billions of people that you can access at once if you want to. It, it's definitely a game-changer for these types of religions. And the whole idea of further globalizing what would have just been a local flavor folk religion and having it now pop up elsewhere where somebody has a, where it resonates with someone personally. That I also think is a very important aspect that should not be overlooked with any 
religion, any of these folk religions that are, in a lot of ways, I think, getting a revival um, thanks to the internet. Well, and I think there's something else going on that I think needs to be spoken to. I'm, I'm sure that a good chunk of your audience understands what Wicca is. Mm-hmm. Being, you know, pretty much the most common pagan religion that we find in the Western world. Yeah. One of the core things about Wicca is that you pick up and adapt components of other faiths, belief systems, and religions that suit you. And you integrate them into your own practice. We're seeing a generation that is picking up the structure of Santeria. And using it with other pantheons for other purposes. And that's really fascinating. The approaches used to deal with higher powers in Santeria are now being used by people who worship, say, the Celtic or the Norse pantheon. And that's something new. The idea of, you know, if you take it to its deepest level, that rider and horse relationship showing up in other religions, that's new. It used to be that things like Santeria had to absorb other religions to survive. Now other religions are absorbing it basically for pointers, practices, and methods, which is something totally new. And that actually, uh, did you do that purposely to transition over to where I said earlier that we're going to transition? Yeah, because I'm still sober enough to make segues, and I am technically a professional sometimes. Okay. And by sometimes, I mean about 40% of the time. All right, let's lower that to 30% and have some more of that moonshine over there. Okay, <laughs> so I'm going to hit the moonshine. Yeah, well, he hits the moonshine, I pop open another beer. Um, but yeah, we had been talking about, you know, this weird intersection, and I'm a good living example of it, of... Fizz. <laughs> of South American, Central American, African cultures, and European cultures. And the internet has created a lot more of that. And, you know, again, as I said, a lot of it's been driven by the Wiccan community. I don't think it's a good thing or a bad thing. I think, like anything else, it will prove or disprove itself over time. It's going to come down to whether or not it actually works for them. But it is fascinating to watch the progression of this stuff. Because I've seen old-school voodoo rituals performed in the name of Celtic gods. And the output, the results, spiritually and, and materially for the people doing the practice, has been effectively the same. I think that um, one of the best, quick-to-explain um, versions of that, in an old-school sense, is how there's the other version of possession, which is a, lot, a little bit more masochistic in terms of aesthetic, divine connection with the Northern European version of horsing. Really, which we touched upon briefly. And that's really a Salmi tradition. That's not a normal, it's not a typical Northern European tradition. It's not something you're going to find in the foreign Seth. It's not something you're going to find in modern day Ausatru. They're much more pragmatic in terms of their religious practice. Now, the Salmi peoples in Northern Europe had similar practices, but possession wasn't a big thing. You see a modern fusion now where, and I've participated in some of this stuff, you're dealing with the older Northern European faiths. You're dealing with types of magic, in this case, Seath, which is trance-based states, you know, similar to what we were talking about with the Codenderos, fusing with this idea of being ridden by a higher power. So... As a guy who's gone through those rituals and been ridden by Odin, 
I can say that it works. I can say that it's functionally valid. Is it true to its original roots? Mm, in no way whatsoever. But it's functionally valid. And functionally valid is important. You know, something I learned from the Jesuits when I studied possession from the Christian side was when you look at a possession case, you have to look at whether or not the case is functionally valid. The reality of the case is you may be dealing with a spiritual experience or a spiritual phenomena, or you could be dealing with a psychological phenomena. You could be dealing with a disassociative experience. That's not as important as is the experience self-contained, fully valid for the person having the experience and the people around them? If that's the case, then it's a possession. It might be mental illness. It might be spiritual. It's still a possession. Functionally, it's a possession. Hey, everybody. It's your host speaking, and this week we are going to be breaking up the interview into two episodes. What does that mean? It means that we are stopping here. In the meantime, you should check out all the other fantastic podcasts on the Podcast Jukebox Network with us, such as Parking Lot Radio, a show with an amazingly diverse set of in-depth interviews that happen in parking lots. Or maybe you should check out Proud to be Kinky, a podcast that gives you the one-on-one on everything to do with alternative sexuality. Or check out Will Sean Podcast, a hilarious show about pop culture. Or maybe you want a bit of all of that and you want to listen to a hilarious pop culture show that has interesting conversations about BDSM. In which case, you should check out Off the Cuffs, which is also on the network. Until we are back with the rest of this fantastic interview, you all stay weird out there. Mm-hmm.